Down 1.7% here, a loss of 37 points or so. Apple shares are just getting hammered this morning. We're down by between 3 and 4.5% generally across these markets. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. We read everywhere. It's said that money makes the world go round. But it's become increasingly clear that money, generated by modern global capitalism, is unraveling the Earth's life support systems so rapidly and thoroughly that it now threatens to bring modern civilization to a grinding halt. Why is that happening, and what should be done about it? Do we ditch capitalism altogether, or can it be reformed to not only stop the damage, but also enhance and protect the environment? What roles could policy, regulation, and law play in making that happen? To help answer these questions, we hear from two people who have been deeply involved in capitalism for decades, but who also have a profound understanding and love of the natural systems we depend upon, and they believe strongly in the moral and practical imperative to protect them. Can capitalism turn the ship before running aground on the twin global crises of climate change and biodiversity collapse? Let's find out on today's episode, Money Talks. Global Capitalism, Ecocide Law, and Financing a Livable Future. Welcome to another edition of the Stop Ecocide podcast series. Mass damage and destruction of nature is called ecocide. In most of the world, it's legally permitted. It's time to change the rules. It's time to make ecocide an international crime. Stop Ecocide change the law, protect the earth. There's a fundamental gap in in our own economics. The current system has a price of zero on nature. When you look at what's called free disposal in pure theory of economics, it says if something has value, it cannot have a negative or a zero price. It has to have a positive price. Otherwise, the, the whole... The whole machinery, the whole paradigm falls apart. That's Ralph Chami, a financial economist and assistant director at the International Monetary Fund's Institute for Capacity Development. He's describing the fundamental flaw at the heart of global capitalism, the astonishing fact that it values living nature at zero. People say, oh, but there's always been value on nature. And I say, really? Then I realized their value of nature is when you kill nature, it has value. Mm. Meaning, meaning a tree. If I ask you today, what's the value of a tree? The first thing that comes to your mind is timber. But what's the value of a living tree? That's what I'm talking about. So, so what, what's missing here? Something is not, something is amiss, you see? Is it a violation of free disposal? Is it, an, is it, a, is it a missing market? Is it the case of incomplete markets or is it the case of the paradigm itself? The paradigm itself treats nature as substitutable, meaning it gave us the strong impression that somehow technology would obviate the need for nature. So we started behaving humans as if we lived outside of nature, that somehow we can grow and nature can be whatever it is and we just can do our own business, which is growth, right? At any, what we realize is, no, you live inside of nature. 
nature is your home. If your home crumbles, you are going to die inside that house. <laughs> we, we abstracted from nature. Only, we only, nature only came in when we needed to extract from it. Price of fish, price of timber, right? Oil, pulling oil, pulling stuff out of nature but not the idea of a living nature. What is the value of a living nature to you? Can you really do without oxygen? Can you do without soil? Can you do without water? Hello. As Ralph describes it, this basic structural defect has led us down a literal dead end. A belief system that puts no value on natural services will eventually destroy life including humanity. And surprise, no humanity, no economy. And we're running out of time. We, don't, we have 10 to 20 years to turn the ship around. And, and putting guide rails in place that force those who move capital and those who act within that economic market to obey certain rules and to change their behavior, whatever changes that behavior, like all hands on deck. That's Tom Rand, a Canadian green tech venture capitalist, thought leader, and author, whose most recent book is The Case for Climate Capitalism. One thing I do think is important that gets brought out there is we begin to differentiate capital stock and flows, right? So for example, no one is incentivized not to take all the fish out of the ocean and sell it, right? Because you're a fish operator and you want to grab all the fish and sell it. And the economic way, the way we measure economic value of fishery is how much fish they're taking out of the ocean. Right. And then the scientists come in and say, well, look, we got to think about the stocks of that ocean. And we got to think about how many fish are left and the health of that ecosystem and all the rest of it. And the language, they're two different languages. So you have sort of a regulatory scientific type trying to regulate the fish, you know, take how much fish you take. And there's a, a trawler that's, that's trying to take as many fish as you can because the only way we measure the value is how much fish you take out of it. Well, if we measured value differently, say, so well, What's the value of the fish in the ocean, right? Well, it's a hell of a lot more than you get out in one year or two years or 10 years, or even 100 years, right? So it, with the right attitude and the right approach, I think you would begin to change behavior. You begin to value the capital stock that we've got. Because right now, the value on it is zero. Zero. How is it possible that a biological species, Homo sapiens, could design a system whose function it is to undermine the basic life support networks on which that species utterly depends. Eric Beinhocker, the executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford University, explores this absurdity in his writings on biophilic markets. Biophilic markets are those that are compatible with life flourishing on Earth. In addition to the clearly wrong-headed notion that humanity is somehow divorced from nature that Ralph Chammy spoke of, Beinhocker identifies another fundamental misconception in orthodox economic thinking, that markets are mechanical equilibrium systems determined by a law of nature, and current arrangements are optimal, i.e. there is no alternative. Beinhocker points out that this is patently false. Markets are, and always have been, dynamic social constructs. They evolve from interactions of economic, technological, political, and environmental forces, and, most importantly, from human values and beliefs codified in law. 
So how do we shape our current biodestructive model into something more biophilic? One way is to put a dollar value on the services provided by nature. This is the pioneering work of Ralph Chami. I found myself in Loreto, Mexico, in the Sea of Cortez, with a bunch of strangers studying the blue whales. And so we were with the blue whales 11 hours a day, every day. Uh, I knew nothing about whales. All they asked me was, do you know how to swim? Yes. Do you know how to dive? Yes. Do you get seasick? No. That's it. You're hired. Uh, we, we were cooked together. We, we slept in two houses and we each had a room. And uh, so we're sitting there and I overhear a conversation about how much whales capture in carbon. Now, why is that important? Because my own institution, the IMF, was working on the pricing of carbon because it's all about climate change. How much do whales have carry carbon on their body on average? So a whale is keeping 33 tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And when she dies, she sinks to the bottom of the ocean because she's very heavy. So how much is that in terms of trees? That's about 1,500 trees on the body of one whale. And, and suddenly I got this idea. As they're talking, I thought to myself, well, I'm sitting at the IMF. We are, we are always talking about the price of carbon. We, we, IMF was coming out saying, well, in order to change, you know, do a dent in climate fight, we need to price carbon. We need to raise the price of carbon. I thought, wait a minute. Can I, what if I value the service of the whale in terms of how much carbon she is fixing on our behalf? What would be the salary that you would pay her for her service? That's, that was, if you like, the eureka moment. If I know how much carbon the whales are fixing on their body, how much would you pay a whale? If they're working on your behalf, how much would you pay them? What's the present value of all that work that they do on our behalf? The value of her services is $3 million, by the way. When I did the study first, it was $2 million, but the price of carbon keeps going up. It's now $3.2 million. So that's what I set out to do. And the reason I wanted to put a price, not because I want to price nature, actually, there's already a price for nature, zero. What I was trying to say is, wait a minute, a living, a living nature is worth a lot more. Just aside from the intrinsic value, intrinsic value is priceless, but this is just from services that it's providing to us that we are taking for granted. Ralph and his colleagues have gone on to put a dollar value on other creatures whose carbon reduction services provided in their natural habitats we also take for granted, including African elephants, as well as seagrass, that they have valued at a staggering $3 trillion worldwide. Ralph is quick to point out the important distinction between intrinsic value and economic value for services rendered. The intrinsic value of a whale or elephant or human being is, of course, priceless, meaning it cannot be measured. But economic services can be measured, inserted into the market, and paid for through the dynamics of supply and demand. This is what we do with human services. Why not nature's services? Tom Rand's work is more conventional, but potentially just as powerful, to make the markets more biophilic by moving the needle on climate change. 
But the object remains the same. Change the economics of the energy system such that you beat fossil fuels at their own game. Uh, and you co-opt all those market forces that are currently arrayed against uh, those of us who want more climate hope. <laughs> and, well, we change the game by investing in technologies that can beat fossil fuels in their own game. I'll give you the, the, you know, the best example I have because they're hitting some real success points now is a company called HydroStore. So they make giant batteries. By, by giant, I mean they can store the output of a nuclear plant all night long. You know, five gigawatt hour projects of the size of the projects they're building in California and in Australia. And it's cheap and it's big and it's made out of air, rock and water. Uh, and it leverages the supply chains of the existing oil and gas and mining sector. So it repurposes that equipment, that supply chain for building giant batteries. And once you have these giant batteries in play, five gigawatt hours is enormous, right? We build two of those plants, we're bigger than Tesla. That, that's the scale of these things. And they're being built, <laughs> these are real. And we actually have the biggest, baddest, you know, Goldman Sachs, right? I mean, they're notorious for being the biggest, baddest, you know, investment bank in the world. Their internal fund, Horizons, invested in our company and some very, very smart people at Goldman Sachs are now helping us bring this company to global domination of energy storage. Now, why is that so important? Well, if you solve the energy storage problem and you do it economically and all the rest of it, there's no ceiling to wind and solar, right? You crack the nut uh, that limits clean energy. Solar and wind are cheap, but as you know, the pundits always talk, it's not always sunny, it's not always windy. So if you crack the storage nut, you, you break that ceiling open and you've effectively, as far as I can tell, if the pension funds and utilities do their job, you've solved the problem of clean energy dominating our grid. So we're leveraging the existing actors in the market. We've leveraged some of the biggest, baddest capital in the market, and we're building the biggest, baddest energy storage company on the planet to solve a particular problem which is the current limit on, on solar and wind. So that's what I think at its best, a venture capitalist like myself can do. And that's what I mean by changing the economics of the energy systems. Um, so when people can press a button and order a hydro store, you can build 30, 40, 50 of these things at a time around the world, you've moved the needle on energy fundamentally. So compressed air storage has been around for a while, but the hydrostatically compensated, so we call it advanced compressed air energy storage, is what makes it really economic. You can build it almost anywhere. It takes almost no land, like 12 acres, roughly, for a five gigawatt hour plant. You can build them right next to a substation. So we're doing that down in LA. Um, mm. And so it's, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a battery made out of air, rock, and water that is largely underground, moving air and water around to store energy and get it back. The beauty of the HydroStore battery is that it is a relatively simple system that builds and utilizes existing technologies and infrastructure to solve the energy storage problem. It's these kinds of systems, Tom argues, that make fighting climate change attractive to large funders and investors, providing them a bridge to move their massive capital assets into building more biophilic markets. We invested when it was a drawing on a piece of paper, and it's, you know, 12 years later, and uh, we're poised to solve some big problems and deliver some pretty substantial changes to how utilities operate and what their possibilities are in being an actor in the climate solution, right? Empowering utilities to really be a partner in allowing us to rebuild our energy systems in a way that is compatible with, you know, an operating ecosystem. <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. that's the kind of that's the kind of thing we're trying to do. So there are several ways we can push modern global capitalism in the direction it needs to go 
to mitigate climate change and prevent biodiversity loss. But how does that work exactly? How do the ideas about natural capital and natural batteries interact with the market? How do we get the big bad players with all the money to respond? The solution lies, as it so often does, in communication and language. Ralph Chami. I'm a financial economist. I'm watching these conservation people group talking to each other. And it's a conversation among activists, CSOs, scientists, and philanthropists, if you like, and governments. Who's out of it? Who's not part of this group? People like me. Financial sector. And I'm thinking, is there a way to bring these people inside the tent so we can fix the problem? Why, why the financial sector? Because financial sector has a lot of money, trillions of dollars, and they can move very fast if they understand what is the problem at hand. But no one was bothering to talk to them. So they, they were funding extractive, destructive services. So I thought, let me speak their language because I'm one of them. And let me not appeal to their better selves because that model has its limitations as that's why we are here where we're here. Obviously that hasn't worked. And I figured the only way my people would listen if I put it in dollars and cents. And the way to do it is not to say, wow, nature is beautiful. This, they'll be like, go hug a tree. But if you say, hey, do you know nature is providing a service worth so many dollars? Do you know that nature is keeping you alive? So you say, we said it for you, it's your own life. Suddenly he's like, really? Keep talking. You see? So you piqued their interest. But how do the dollar values for nature's services enter the market? The answer, carbon pricing and commitments to carbon reduction. What happened was with the price of carbon, Kyoto, when they met, and then Paris Accord, the Paris meeting 2015, this when you see the price of carbon starting to go from zero and rise very quickly, exponentially. Before that, that was a price by the, by the government. This, what I'm talking about is a market price. You see, I come from the markets and that's a different way of thinking. We're, I'm now talking about forces of demand and supply and prices. That didn't exist when the conservationists were talking among themselves. If I had done this exercise on the whales before 2015, I would have calculated the carbon that the whales capture on their body. And then I would come to multiply it by a price. The price would have been zero. So if I had written this paper pre-2019, most likely the value of the service would have been zero. The reason is there were no commitments yet to go carbon zero, carbon negative. That's what started the game. That's how the price act up because countries and firms made commitments to go carbon zero by a certain date. There's an insatiable demand for carbon reduction and sequestration. That caused the price, there's demand. So the price is going up. Now the question is, where's the supply? You see, where will the supply come from? Well, the IPCC report of a month and a half ago, look at that chapter, it says, nature can provide 40% of what is needed, not the 100%, which means the price is gonna continue to go up and nature investment, nature tech is the cheapest of all of the technologies. You know why? Because you don't have to do much. You just have to leave nature freaking alone <laughs> so it can rejuvenate. So the IPCC report says nature can give you 40% of what you need. 
Are we marshalling 40% what we need? Hell no. So you got to start first by telling people what nature can do for you. The scientists have been saying it all along. I didn't discover that. I'm just translating that scientific knowledge into the language that people like us can understand. From his perspective as a venture capitalist, Tom agrees. You have a way of valuing the natural stock, valuing the ecosystem, and, and, and thereby preventing people from doing whatever they please with it. So I think it starts something, because right now it's just a bunch of regulators fighting the free marketers, and it's just this constant battle, and we're all far better off preserving the natural systems. Let's figure out a way to talk about preserving those natural systems in a language that the other side comprehends, right? That the big, bad economic actors comprehend. And this is one way of doing that. For me, it's actually chasing the biggest game of all, which is making it in the self-interest of all the self-interested actors out there to do the right thing and build a low-carbon economy. And Ralph believes the carbon market is just the beginning. So you can think of the whale exercise as more about really biodiversity than really just just carbon itself. Because I don't believe in carbon itself. Carbon is just a short game to bring the markets into the space for them to understand and feel comfortable with investing in nature. My aim was to make conservation profitable. You see, conservation was always a cost proposition. Companies think of it as a cost. This paradigm is a completely shift. They're going to be chasing you and saying, here's my money because I want to invest in the way conservation becomes a source of capital for development, sustainable and shared development. And this is not a hypothetical because I'm, I'm doing it. This is not some bolts of finance. It says it's not about planting trees. It's about the life among the trees. It's not about the ocean. It's the life in the ocean. The ocean as a living system, the, the forest as a living system. It's about biodiversity. It's about ecosystem functions. It's about flora and fauna. That's what makes life. Mm -hmm. So, But I had to do it in terms of carbon because the carbon market exists and there's a price for it. It's important to note there that the real economic value is not the whale or the tree or the elephant in isolation. The true value is those creatures in the context of their ecosystems. A blue whale, for example, cannot perform its service of carbon sequestration without a healthy ocean, nor an elephant without a healthy forest. The real economic value to humanity is the biosphere itself, intact and whole. You are listening to the episode Money Talks, Global Capitalism, Ecocide Law, and Financing a Livable Future. Listen to this show again and everything we do on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Podcasts for the Planets is an exclusive production of Stop Ecocide International, showcasing the important voices of our time to help us understand and address some of our most challenging global issues. Welcome back. We've been hearing some trailblazing ideas from Ralph Chammy and Tom Rand, but how do we embed those ideas into a market 
that continues to be biodestructive? How do we hasten the transition to an economy that supports life flourishing on Earth? The market structure, financing, and will are all there. The missing piece now is policy and law. I can speak a little bit to the corporate perspective when it comes to decarbonization. You know, we are trying to build as many renewable energy projects as possible as we possibly can to support global decarbonization. One of the biggest challenges that I see uh, is really around the cost of decarbonization. And part and parcel of that cost is around uh, regulatory frameworks and policies. Uh, and basically the thumbnail or my key message uh, for today for this discussion is the, the more that we have stable policy and regulatory frameworks, the cheaper it becomes to decarbonize. That, that is the message in a thumbnail. Uh, companies and, and, and uh, corporates are dealing with uh, instability around cost of carbon, around uh, climate change targets, around tax regimes, uh, and basically instability equals expense. That's Wendy Franks the Executive Vice President of Strategy and Investment Management for Northland Power, a publicly traded Canadian energy company. Her voice is one of a growing chorus that includes the International Corporate Governance Network, which represents businesses who collectively manage $59 trillion. That's over half the world's total capital assets. In a recent statement to the United Nations, They acknowledged the interrelated threats of climate change and biodiversity loss, and they urged governments to mandate regulations and to collaborate internationally to criminalize ecocide. Ecocide to me is like a minimum, don't. So yes, I look at ecocide as a necessary, necessary. If you care, you criminalize. This is the value system, you see? This says, this is our values. And then guess what? You'd be amazed how the markets take that value system and create services around it. And the economic agent, we don't want to penalize anybody. We don't send anybody to jail. We want to change people's behavior. We have so little time left. So what we want, we need the policy action. The markets realize, oh, the terrain has changed. So I'll provide different service now, such that I satisfy the policy. But if you don't have the policy, why are you looking at the markets? Ralph recently said that an ecocide crime would help restructure incentives for businesses and governments, effectively reorienting the relationship between development and the environment to one where humans are more likely to live within ecological boundaries, i.e. a biophilic capitalism. I think there's actually a fundamental um, issue around the, the valuation of natural capital, and it's exactly why these the two sides are absolutely necessary, um, and I think particularly why the criminal parameter is necessary, um, because if we have the, the the sort of rule in place of you know beyond this level of harm thou shalt not go, not only shall thou not go, but according to the consensus definition of ecocide that emerged last year, thou shalt not even threaten to go. Um, then what that does is that starts to direct the economic questions in a, in a new direction and allows them to more healthily interact with this possibility of, of, um, of valuing the services in a way that protects 
rather than commodifying. And I think that, that without the ecocide law parameter in place, there is a real danger of those kinds of things arising. Um, but I think with it in place, then you know, there's, there's the potential to, to actually... Yeah, to start to sort of redirect the flow because, you know, money is like water. It, it will flow in the direction of least resistance. And so if we can shift that flow, then actually the energy starts to flow in a new direction as well. The ideas start to flow in a new direction as well. And I think we're really seeing that at the moment with this level of frustration with the multilateral environmental agreements like Paris, like the CBD, you know, or like the Stockholm Declaration, you know, ultimately... These are all wonderful words, but the, the action is not forthcoming at the level that, that it needs to be. And the big question is how? How are we going to implement all of this? And, you know, for us for, at, at Stop Eastside and the growing movement that's supporting this, this legal initiative, it is about the how. The, here, here is a solution for the how. You put this parameter in place and it creates the how. That's Jojo Meta, Executive Director of Stop Ecoside International the global movement to make ecocide an international crime. And that's the role of regulation, is to rewire and short-circuit economic activity to motivate everybody to, to do the right thing. So most of the world are decent people going about their business, trying to earn a living and take their kids to hockey practice and do whatever they need to do. And so that's what regulation is for, is to even the playing field and allow that CEO to follow her conscience and say, I want to do the right thing, but I have to, I have to be given an economic framework that allows me to do the right thing. And mm -hmm. so I think a good regulatory environment allows our individual consciences to, to, to line up with our economic self-interest, ultimately. There is a system that we need to change. And we can always change our behavior and you know, the 10% of noble people will do that and they will affect change. But fundamentally, you need to change the entire system. And that, that's, the, that's the problem that we have. And I would think the vast majority of good people will avoid doing the bad thing uh, anyway, but they will certainly avoid doing the bad thing if there's a deterrent like that. I mean, so, and, and I, I do think, look, we take it as fundamental, some positive rights, which is the right to clean air and right to clean water. And also you can go down the list, housing, and you know, depends on your political leanings. There's a lot of rights I think we have embedded within being a human being in the 21st century, right? We live in a legacy of progress and we're all born into that legacy and some share of it should be ours. And surely it's you know, clean air, water, and some food, right? At the very least, those, as you point out, those rights mean nothing if the natural systems that provide those rights are, are destroyed. But the right to destroy the natural systems that support us all seems to me to be pretty clear that that's wrong. Uh, the, the complexities of making it a criminal act and the complexities of prosecution, I will leave that to the legal experts, but it seems clear to me that destroying, especially willfully destroying, and the notion that people would, would think twice and, and you know, um, look deep inside them before they, they acted in that way if there's a criminal deterrent seems pretty obvious to me as well. It is true, though, that as, as the years go by, um, things that seem completely obvious to us now, you know, the right of women to vote, for, I mean, this is a, you know, there's some, as, as society progresses, things become so obvious in retrospect. But yeah. when you're first articulating them and trying to put them into a systemic notion, um, it, seem, it seems radical or whatever, new or something. But in retrospect, it's just blindingly obvious. And ecocide seems like one of those things. Einstein famously said, 
We can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. There are some voices that say we shouldn't reform capitalism. We should get rid of it entirely. I asked Ralph and Tom for their thoughts on this notion. If we have the time to go back to the drawing board, we'd come up with a different system. We don't have time. Time is running out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I always believe don't choose nothing over something because mm. nothing could be complete chaos. And, and, then, and then what? Mm-hmm. So if we had time, we know, that's what I'm trying to tell you, the theory itself has issues, has problems. We don't have much time. Titanic is sinking. Question is, what is it that we can do? So I am not talking about the optimal strategy. I'm talking about what is feasible. Then you can unpack and see what, what, what should go, what should change. I'm co-opting finance to protect what we care about. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're talking about getting rid of free market, neoconservative capitalism a la America, sure, throw it out. And, um, you know, what's common about it is, you know, market forces and private ownership of, of the means of production. But there's no reason that those economies can't be made low carbon very quickly. So first of all, I say, I don't know what you mean by throwing out capitalism. I think you'd be a little, be a little more careful in your language. Two, I would argue capitalism comes in many flavors, including Sweden and Costa Rica, who are, who are climate champions. Um, and, and I would also sort of ask the question, like, what, what are you going to replace it with? I mean, life is complicated. I mean, I don't know of any counterexamples, including non-capitalist countries like North Korea and Venezuela and Russia and sort of China. I mean, they have massive emissions too. So, so whatever system you're going to replace it with, there are going to be versions of oligarchs and versions of leadership and power structures and greed and so on. Humans are humans. Humans are complex creatures. And humans don't become uncomplex, idealistic versions of what we want us to be because you've changed the economic system to one of controlled supply. Opening a bakery is a, is a capitalist act. Having an RRSP so your parents can retire is a capitalist act. Taxing business so you're have, you can go to university reasonably cheaply is a capitalist act. So, you know, I think just don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think it's useful to ask questions about our economic system and ask fundamental questions about growth, ask fundamental questions about whose hands are on the wheel, ask fundamental questions about who gets to own the media. Those are fundamentally interesting questions to ask about the nature of our economic system but they are independent of whether or not we are a capitalist country again sweden and costa rica are capitalist countries they're very different from the united states we don't have time to wait for the revolution like i'm sorry we don't have time it's tantalizing to consider what a capitalist economy with all of its wealth and might could achieve if it was nature affirming and grounded in ecological reality. And the hopeful message is that it is entirely within our power to make it so. Professor Beinhocker at Oxford reminds us that economics is a social, not a natural, science. Meaning, what markets do is dependent on what people believe, and the laws and regulations they create to reflect those beliefs. To use a computer systems analogy, Garbage in, garbage out. In our case, literally, and far too much. A biophilic capitalism corrects the original sin that nature's services equal zero and can therefore be destroyed without cost or consequence.
It starts with an international criminal law against ecocide, which provides the fundamental guardrails for market behavior and points the way forward. You've been listening to Money Talks, Global Capitalism, Ecocide Law, and Financing a Livable Future, a Stop Ecocide podcast for the planet. With music by Andy Squiff. I'm your host, Eric Aris. Today, we heard the voices of Ralph Chami, Tom Rand, Wendy Franks, and Jojo Mehta. This episode was written and directed by Paul and Donna Grace Campbell. Our executive producer is Donna Grace Campbell. Dave Ronald is our sound engineer and audio wizard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to an episode of Stop Ecocide, Change the Law, Change the World with music courtesy of Kaylee Watts. For more information, find us online at stopecoside.ca. Thanks so much for listening.